This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latte from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and the New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, and I'm Kella Fasene. I'm a staff writer here at the New Yorker, and I'm sitting in today for David Remnick. Early in his career, Bono told an interviewer about his plans for his band, U2. If we stay in small clubs, we'll develop small minds, and then we'll start making small music, he said. That turned out not to be a problem. In the course of a decade, U2 went from playing local gigs in Dublin, Ireland, to being one of the biggest bands in the world. And Bono, the fearless and sometimes shameless leader, became the definitive rock star of the modern era, conquering arenas and stadiums around the globe, singing out and often holding forth, too. Bono just wrote a memoir called Surrender. He joined David Remnick at the New Yorker Festival earlier this month. When you talk to people who have been in bands when they're 16, no matter what their destiny was, they have no expectations other than to play in a bar, to maybe be the best blues band on, in London, like the Stones, or whatever. What was the ambition that was fired up in you pretty quickly once this band sort of took shape? Megalomania started in me at a very early age, uh, David. Um, and the other, th- the other part of it is um, desperation. And the sense that, you know, from my point of view, this was liberation for me. And I had known as a child that I had melodies in my head and, you know, here and there I'd be good at school, but I was losing concentration and more interested in girls and then music and then, oh, music and girls. (laughs) And, And a release from... A release from a kind of the pain that a lot of people feel when they don't know what it is that they might have to offer. When I sang in U2, um, something got a hold of me and it made sense of me. Yeah. Do you think that some of that feeling, some of that passion came from the loss that you had suffered two years before? Your mother died at her own father's funeral 
or fell Ill, certainly fell ill and then died soon thereafter. Um, eerily, strangely, this is, this is a loss at the same age that Paul McCartney, I think Johnny Lydon, mm-hmm. um, Bob Geldof, uh, John Lennon's mother died very early. What was in you from that loss and then a household of three guys, uh, your brother and your father? Um, it, it seemed there was a great emptiness after that. It's funny that thing about rock and roll singers and the mother. Um, I heard somebody say in hip-hop, it's more the father. It's interesting. I don't know if that's true or not, but they're both about abandonment. And, you know, the heart of the blues, for me, the, it, was, it turned into a gift. This wound in me just turned into this opening where I uh, had to fill the hole with, with music. And, and I, it's a very unscientific theory I have. If someone you love's passing, there's sometimes a gift. And the opening up of music came from my mother. And when my father passed, I finally became, um, uh, I came into a different kind of voice. My father used to say, you're a baritone. Who thinks he's a tenor? <laughs> and I sort of, after my father died, I felt I kind of became the tenor. What do you think of that analysis of your voice, a baritone who thinks he's a tenor? Very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> my father was quite accurate. Quite he had wise. me down. And, and, and loved opera himself. Yeah, he, he, he did. He was a tenor. And um, pretty good tenor. And... Yeah, it's interesting. You think about working class, Dublin, city centre Dublin, Catholic, um, loved... His mother used to listen to the crickets course on the radio, like in England, and he listened to opera, they read. It's it's interesting, and I I like the fact that when people don't fit into their their box, my father didn't fit into the box, and, and then just round the corner, my mother lived she was a protestant and they fell in love with each other um not remarkable in these days but in a time when ireland was nearly at civil war um um that it became a big a big thing tell, tell me about though the, your memories of that sectarian violence and the way it fed into your art that was beginning your music um developed uh, a distrust of religion, very suspicious of religion. I still am. You know, you see what's going on in Iran, for instance, today. It's very male, isn't it, the, this religious uh, violence. And even going back uh, to when I was growing up, you know, it was just, it was very male, that energy. And my father was also suspicious of kind of nationalism. My father used to say things like, you know, he'd quote O'Casey. He'd say, that line from O'Casey, you know, what is Ireland but the, only the land that keeps my feet from getting wet? <laughs> and when I was writing the book, I found out, O'Casey never wrote that. No, he made that up. <laughs> he really did. It's a great line, though, isn't it? <laughs> it is a great line. Your title is Surrender. It's a motif that runs throughout 
the book. Why did you name the book Surrender? It's a word I am still grappling with. I'm kind of gathering around it. It doesn't come natural to me. How do you mean? I find it, you know, I was kind of born with my fists up, uh, metaphorically speaking, sometimes, literally. You describe yourself as an angry guy right off the... A little bit. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, it's not even that, just a bit, suspi- bit you know, def- a bit defensive maybe, and just have my, my fists up. And so the word surrender is, doesn't come natural to me. Or a lot of Irish people growing up in the 70s, I still find it hard, you know, to surrender to my bandmates, as an older person as you, it gets even harder to surrender to my wife, um, you know, to surrender to my maker. I'm, I'm, a, I'm quite a defiant character, and I, and I'm, but I'm working on that, David, and <laughs> that's why I wrote the book. Um, and, that, and that's why we're here. I'm here, yes. Um, my mother dropped me on my head when I was a baby. You, 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 an incredible uh, fraternity and friendship and creative ferment develops in the band, and yet you describe more than once how the band o- almost breaks up. There's an early... Only on the good albums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's one moment that, that I wish you'd talk about that where Edge has a kind of spiritual crisis... And he's going to leave, and then if he's going to leave, you're going to leave, and the whole thing seems ready to just dissipate in in a moment's time. What happened? It's in the book, I swear to God. (laughs) Is tonight a Friday night? It's more of a Sunday morning story, but um, I will answer that question. Thank you. So... We're in a non-denominational school. They don't, they're not pushing religion down our throats. And yet, three of us end up with this very deep faith. We're touched by some of the people we meet at a deep level. And we start reading the sacred texts. We start exploring this. We meet these, I suppose you'd call them first century radical Christians kind of punks and uh, you know they were they didn't need many material things they were very um strict in that sense but they were they were, in, were kind of interesting and, and and at first we thought that they they accepted us for being who we were um but after a while we were that, that they started to get in at us maybe this music thing is you should just put that down and if you know the world is broken, really, and it's 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 really broken, and and if you want to be part of the fixing of it, maybe <clears throat> music is something you should just put away and sing these praise songs. So I'm like, every song we sing is a praise song. What is the story on this? And I can't do the happy clappy. I think I think. God might object to being patronized. And, and, um, lovely, brilliant, isn't he brilliant? 
Now, you figure God already knows. I think God knows, but I'll tell you what, I'm into worship, and I do believe in worship. And the worship, even if it starts with brilliant, if you get to the brilliance, the brilliance, ooh, well, that's something. So anyway, we, we're kind of going, we're believing these people. Uh, maybe we're wrong. And Edge is feeling it really badly. He's in a kind of agony, actually. And he rings me up and he says, I, I don't think I can resolve this. And so uh, I said, well, yeah, I'm having some problems with this too. I want to be useful. I want to be useful in my life. I want to have my life to add up to something and I want our life to add up to something. I want to be useful to the world. The world is, you know, fucked. Um, they didn't like you saying fucked, but that's how we spoke. But I, I said, okay, we'll agree. I, I'll, I'll leave. And then Larry was like the same. And then Adam, again, all he ever wanted. And he's like, oh God. <laughs> and, and, and Adam had introduced us to um, a quite posh manager called Paul McGuinness. Um, and we just had success with our first album called Boy. And... And... And we'd go and tell him that it was all over. So he was sitting there and we walked in and Paul So you you've been speaking to God <laughs> and we're like Yeah. Yeah. And um, God has told you that you don't want to be in the band again. You want to break up the band. So, well, in a manner of speaking, yes. Okay. So you've been speaking to God and he doesn't want you to be in a band. And how's God on legal contracts? Because I've signed a legal contract here. And we were just, you know, just completely, oh, oh maybe we didn't hear that right. And um, anyway, so we went back on the road and we, we played the October tour and it was pretty special, but Edge still wasn't resolved. And he was trying to figure out how could we make our music, a not a utility, but use useful in the more profound sense. And Ali and I got married and I went away to Jamaica. Chris Blackwell gave us gold and I, this place that he, and, and we were like, whoa. We didn't have much cash to speak on, so this was incredible. And this was the land of Bob Marley. And, and Bob Marley played a role in our life, though I would never meet him. And here's what it was, Edge, whilst we're away, starts to work on a song that will really explain, will solve the, the, the problem. And the song was called Sunday Bloody Sunday. 
And, <clears throat> and he starts it off. But if you hear it, you'll hear it, the Jamaican influence. So, I can't believe the news today. I can't close my eyes. Well, on that way, how long? And you realize that the reason why Chris Blackwell didn't throw us off Island Records, because we'd made a mad religious album, wasn't mad at all. But people were calling it mad. He was used to dealing with Bob Marley. And Bob Marley wanted to sing to God. Bob Marley wanted to sing to girls. Bob Marley wanted to sing to the world around him and protest it. So there it was, a three-chord strand that became U2. And that started with Edge on Sunday Bloody Sunday. Bono spoke with David Remnick at the New Yorker Festival. Their conversation continues in just a minute. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm Kella Fasene. We'll be right back. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you are not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. On Radio Lab, first we thought we made some sort of mistake. Two surprisingly simple scientific discoveries... This is crazy. I mean, we were just so surprised. That makes us reconsider our assumptions about progress. We need to learn the language of the doctors of that time. We need to be a little bit less dismissive. Staff retreat from Radiolab. I learned a bit of humility this way. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm Kelly Fasani sitting in today for David Remnick. We're returning now to David's interview with Bono, the lead singer of U2. Bono just wrote a memoir, Surrender, about his life and his time in U2. One of the things David and Bono talked about is the band's early hit, Sunday Bloody Sunday. The lyrics refer to a 1972 massacre in Northern Ireland when protesters were killed by British soldiers. Bloody 
but Bono insists on the song's non-sectarian message. He says it was a condemnation of violence on all sides of the conflict. Here's David Remnick talking with Bono. such an interesting song in, the, in, the, in, in so many ways, such a wonderful song, and it was also something that was a little complicated for you politically, for the public. You would say, you described it once as, for unionists, it was a betrayal. For nationalists, it was an ad campaign. What was the political line that you were trying to tread with Sunday Bloody Sunday? I mean, yeah, it, it was an odd song because we were trying to contrast this this bloody event in Irish history with Christ on the cross and the kind of stupidity of of religious violence and and you know, but we we're like twenty two and 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 feeling this in our country. Um, and and at first people got excited. Some of the more the, the Republicans were like putting up the war album and the posters around, good man. And then and the unionists were like, ooh. And then they swapped, and it was like, no, they're not for the war. And um, and it was like, oh, and it, it, we didn't know which side we were on. And then I started to dismantle the Irish flag on stage. I would tear off the gold and, and then tear off the green and just hold up the white. And these were sort of dramatic acts I learned from, I suppose, studying John Lennon, whatever. But these were, these were powerful acts. And then, through reading about the civil rights in these United States and reading about Dr. King, then I started to understand more about nonviolence and we went into New Year's Day, we went into a whole, this, this vein, just a very rich vein in songwriting. And, but it did, in Dublin there was, and not in Dublin, but around the country, suddenly it wasn't as, it just wasn't as cool to be into you 2 We weren't so much the national team in certain areas. But you, you would preface the song and performance by saying, this is not a rebel song. Was that alienating to some? Yes. And how did you feel it? How, how did that alienation or rejection or opposition make itself known? Um, I, I remember a, uh, being in a, in a car coming out of one of our um, concerts in Croke Park and our car was surrounded and and I just dismantled the flag and there were some angry people around the car and they were trying to smash the window where Ali was sitting with me and um, I remember thinking that was wow and you, you, and you feel the pain of these people now I understand the real pain people were in and I, I wish not to make light of it. But I think you can die for your ideals, but you shouldn't kill for them, if at all. And, um, but I understand that these people felt they were in a war, at a war and that I had betrayed them and our band was betraying them. You recently appeared 
as you do so often in these situations in Kiev, in, in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. And I, I saw you, I, I believe you were in a metro station, a subway station, and met with politicians. What do you find yourself achieving when you do that? Tell me about your experience in Ukraine. So it goes back to Sunday, Bloody Sunday. It goes back to charity is a thing that we all are part of. But justice is something that really is a reason for me to get out of bed. And the injustice of what's happening in Ukraine um, was so hard to take that we just wanted people to know that we were with them. And uh, I'd met President Zelensky before he was president. I met him in Ukraine. He's a great storyteller. I mean, you know this. And he's an actor. He's one of us. You know what I mean? His, his, Yermak, his, uh, his, his, his right hand, is a movie film producer. They're storytellers. They need to get their story out, which is why they're doing all this media, because they know if, the, if, the, if they disappear from your, from your phones, if they disappear from your screens, then they mightn't get the, the, the money uh, from the United States. So, so when President Zelensky asked us to go, I, um, I, I had, to, had to go... Um, and Edge wanted to go, and there was lots of musicians. I remember Bob Geldof wanted to go. Lots of, we all wanted to go, but in the end, it was the two of us busking in a sort of, um, in a subway. Um, but you know what's interesting? When I saw it back, they lit it really well. I'm like, they're in a war. And they're like, no. You know what to do here to make this look. <laughs> Bono, you need to look good. You're going to the It's like, what? <laughs> and uh, but it's just, yeah, these, these, these are incredible people. And, and, and they love freedom. And they love it so much, they're ready to lay down their life for freedom. And we who live in freedom should really, really remember not to fall asleep in ours. <clears throat> Bono, um, I should say I came here several hours ago and people had been lined up outside. They were very eager to ask you questions. And um, one that I kept hearing was, did you find writing a memoir therapeutic in any way? What was the motivation to do so? Uh, the gift it gave me was time on my own. And it turns out I, I need more time on my own. Um, and it changed me, actually. I don't know if it's changed me for well. I don't go out as much. Um, and also, I'm such a shy typist <laughs> that when I talk, I talk too quickly and I sort of throw the paint at the canvas. But when I'm typing, I'm, I have to slow down my thoughts and, um, and, and make more, they make more sense of me and I make more sense of them. This is a wonderful question. You and... Ali recently celebrated 40 years of marriage. <laughs> He's Thank here you. tonight. 
out of this that. This is great. This is terrific. An Irish newlywed in the audience asks, what's the secret? A newlywed in the audience. It, it, is, it, is, it is quite... It's quite mad getting married. Yeah, I know. It, like, it, it, there's a grand madness about it. And, and there's, some, there's, something, there's something about that and knowing that you're going against the odds. But I would say, if you're asking me seriously, that friendship is... Friendship can outpace romantic love sometimes and um, you know friendship is what myself and Ali have we have when you have romantic love and friendship that's really something special Um, and but I don't want to give you the impression that everything was all easy for us and and um, but any time either of us got lost, the other would get, would, would be there to, to, get, to, to get the other one home. And, uh, and I'm so grateful. And it was brilliant when we got to, to 40 and we went, let's not fuck this up now. <laughs> I mean, you know. A, a related question. The other relationship that's 40 years old, we, we just had the documentary, the Get Back documentary. We watched the Beatles in rehearsal. Brilliant. And anybody who was in a band said, it's amazing, they're so creative, they're getting along so well. And then anybody else who's not in a band thought, they hate each other, they're not <laughs> getting along at all. When you watched that documentary, how did you relate it to your 40 years in a band? Is this band has outlasted the Beatles by a, matter, a factor yeah. of four. Yeah, it's it's. I, I couldn't believe it. The, uh, get back if you haven't seen it. First of all, who knew the Beatles invented reality TV? <laughs> that was mad. Like they had little, you know, there was they had little camera, little microphones in the flower pots, and they're over there. John's talking like this, and they're giving out fucking now, and they wired. <laughs> so they invented reality TV. Second thing was like watching Jesus uh, like on the, you know, the Beatitudes or something. And it was, you know, you could imagine, it's like... Uh, Drafting the Beatitudes. And the weak will inherit the earth, and the, no, the meek will inherit the earth. <laughs> no, no, the sick, you know, you could see them actually doing it. I couldn't believe it. And, but yeah, you could feel the tension. It's very hard for males, and it gets harder to move around each other the older you get. But males are funny, especially, I think women are better at this, but, you know, I could see it in the Beatles. And I should tell you just a tiny little story that Paul told me, which is brilliant. Like, I hang out with Paul all the time. I don't. But let me tell you, when I do, I pay attention. Because it's like hanging out with Johann Sebastian Bach. I would carry his guitar case and no question about it. But he was talking about his relationship. And he says, you know, it could be really overbearing. <laughs> I, I realise. And he says, you know, I was going at John one day. It was going at him, you know. And uh, he just looked up. And actually, he was wearing glasses just like you. No kidding. And... Uh, <laughs> 
And he just did this, he went, hey Paul, it's just me, it's John. It's only me, it's John. And he said, trying to calm me down, he was. And, but bands go at each other. And, and we, you know, but, it's, but again, it's friendship. It has to be friendship. And, and, and that's the thing that has kept you two together. But you, you did something very unusual for a band in that you split everything up financially equally. What a fool. <laughs> well, <laughs> didn't think we'd add up to anything. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's 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 the best thing ever. And those songs are made what they are because of Edge, Adam, and Larry. And and um, our manager used to say to us, you know. It's not musical differences that break up most bands. It's the moolah. <laughs> and he said, get that right. And, um, and other crackers like, don't be the band who looks too stupid to enjoy being at number one. <laughs> Smile, for God's sake. <laughs> Bono's new memoir is called Surrender. He talked with my boss, David Remnick, at the New Yorker Festival this month. David's going to be back next week, and I hope you will be too. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm Kella Fasene. Thanks for joining us. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards. This episode was produced by Emily Botin, Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen and Putubwele. Along with Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, Jenny Lawton, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline and James Napoli, with help this week from Justin Trigger. And special thanks to Catherine Sterling, Amanda Miller, Nico Brown, and Michael Etherington. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. 